With five seconds to go. They got to pay attention to the clock. Gillen. Got it! Syracuse win! Are you serious? Oh, the right guy scored. He deserved it. All right, let's start with a quick story because I think it illustrates what 2017 has been for the sportscaster so far. So it's Thursday at 10.30 in the morning. I'm in Buffalo. And uh, on Saturday, uh, right around this time, 10.30 in the morning, Don came and picked me up. And we were pumped. Uh, we were going down to the Sabres game uh, to watch our friend Kenny Agostino, who's been on this show and also the Hockey Podcast. Uh, we were going to go down and watch him play his game. Uh, the Blues were in town playing the Sabres. So Don and I went down and really had a great day, had a great time. Got to see Kenny before or after the game. Went to the casino afterwards, spent some time. And really talked about the show and planned out what it was going to be the next few weeks, uh, where we wanted to go, uh, talking about getting on the right track, how slow we've kind of gotten off to a start in 2017. And we really talked about everything. And the plan was uh, was for Thursday, or Wednesday, excuse me, Wednesday night, uh, after Don was done with his new job to come over and record three things in the book club and the outro for the podcast. So, it didn't work out. I'm here by myself, and it's amazing because not only uh, did my step-grandmother die on Wednesday, but poor Don's little daughter broke her arm on a teeter-totter. So it was a double disaster of a day on Wednesday. So obviously we didn't get to uh, we didn't get to hook up, but we have uh, we have a show regardless. Tom, <laughs> it's funny I wrote Tom Justin Barrasso, who writes about wrestling for Sports Illustrated and does a fantastic job doing it, is on the podcast. He's making his debut today, and Chris Burke, who has been a friend of this program since his very early days at Sports Illustrated and it's kind of morphed into their draft guy is going to stop by as well and we're going to do the first of probably many discussions about what this year's draft is going to be like uh, I'm curious about it, a bunch of different things in that in that aspect uh, I played the uh, played the highlight of the Duke and Syracuse clip uh, my brothers and I uh, we're with family last night, obviously. Uh, after everything kind of happened, you, you just kind of congregated someone's house, and we sat and watched that game, and it was a pretty, pretty great game to watch. And actually, on Saturday when we were at the casino, I bumped into Sal Capaccio, who, if you're from local from Buffalo, you know the name, and he's also been on the podcast to talk about college basketball. And I asked him, I said, "Well, what's going to happen with Syracuse? They're going to make the tournament." He said, well, they got to find a way to beat Duke or North Carolina. Uh, and they found a way to beat Duke. 
So here's what we're going to do today from here. Uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, we'll come back with Chris Burke. We'll talk about the NFL draft and the NFL offseason, see what Chris is up to. Then after that, I'll come back and we'll do a retro book club book of the month uh, discussion. Uh, last week, I think we talked about the last great game. Uh, and then after that, Justin Brasso will be on. We'll talk some wrestling with him. It's a really fun interview. And then I'll close things out with one last thing. Uh, a few plugs. Don't forget, you can find uh, this podcast now on SoundCloud. SoundCloud.com slash SportsDaskCasters. You can also tweet me at Sports underscore Casters or at Don Lake Sports. Uh, the SportsCasters at gmail.com. Also, the Lonely End of the Ring podcast had a week off last week, but we're back this week. Uh, with a guy who covers uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets. You can find that podcast on SoundCloud.com slash LonelyRinkPod or on Twitter at LonelyRinkPod. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with Chris Burke. All right, our next guest. He's from East Grand Rapids, Michigan, and is a graduate of the University of Michigan. He works for Sports Illustrated, where he's basically the draft dude there. I mean, he has taken over the draft's coverage at SI, and he does a great job. He's making his 13th appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Chris Burke. What's up, Chris? Hey, thanks for having me back again. We missed you. It's been a bit. Yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> Yeah, happy to be here. What was the uh, what was the what was the number one thought you had uh, after the Super Bowl? Uh, personally, or football? Personally, I was ready for a few days off, uh, which I still am ready for. Um, <laughs> a little quieter now. Uh, I mean, I think right after the Super Bowl was, I still was kind of in shock about how that game went down and everything that played out in that fourth quarter. Um, I was writing for that night and had, as I'm sure most, most of the journalists that were at the game had started to craft the Falcons victory story already. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's still kind of remarkable to think back on it. It's an amazing couple of years for, for, uh, for Saints fans watching the Super Bowl. I mean, last year had <laughs> the demise of a dream you know arrival as a dream season the panthers will never have a season as good as that and they can't finish it and then they humiliate themselves their quarterback acts like a baby after the game and all that which was fantastic and then this year i mean it's literally the the biggest collapse in the history of sports in a single game i think i mean yeah you know, i guess if you're rooting against those teams yeah that, it's uh, been fantastic couldn't have played out any better. I, I think there were quite a few people on the other side of the fence that didn't necessarily have a rooting interest in that game, but kind of were enjoying seeing the Patriots get taken to school there and then obviously flipped on its head uh, in the third quarter. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess from, from your perspective, if you're, if you're a Saints guy or you're a, a Bucks fan, um, hasn't been a bad couple couple yeah. Super Bowls, other than your team not being there, I guess. Right, but you can't be there every year, so this is the next best thing, I guess. And it's funny, too, because all of my loved ones but living in Buffalo were on the opposite side of that. 
you know, just living to hate New England and hope that they don't have to see, you know, Tom Brady, who's just owned them to the point of, I don't even know if humiliation's a strong enough word anymore. He's like twenty-five and two against them or something. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you know, it was an interesting Super Bowl party. You know. I, yeah, my uh, my wife's a, from Pittsburgh. She's a Steelers fan, so she was sort of in a similar boat. She's not overly fond of the, <laughs> of the Patriots <laughs> and not great recent history against Tom Brady and company either. So I think she. Uh, I think she was crossing her fingers that that score would hold up when it was 28-3 or whatever. Uh, but, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> at some point you got to tip your cap to, to what the Patriots do and what Brady keeps doing. Yeah. I, hey, I, I have all the respect in the world for him. I have no no beef at all. You know, they uh, it was a great moment to watch the commissioner get booed, who's another one of my enemies. <laughs> To watch him get booed like that was fantastic, and for him to have to humble himself and give those trophies out to people you know he didn't want to was a fantastic day. But, as Rich Eisen once said on this show, it is now the non-playing season. And the most exciting part of the non-playing season is the draft. And just yesterday, you released your big board, 4.0. And I guess the first thing I got to ask you about the big board 4.0, which really jumps out to me, is how do you handle a guy like Joe Mixon when you make a big board like this? Or not a guy like Uh, Joe Mixon, but Joe Mixon. Yeah, um, it's a good question. I don't know that there's a great great answer for it. I mean, we... In the process of updating our position rankings, too, and I've got him as the number five running back right now. Uh, and he was, I, when I go through to do the big board, I don't have, like, NFL.com has, a, you know, a specific grading scale. We don't really do our grades until right at the end of the, right at the end when we do our, put out our top 300 guys right for our draft tracker. So, um I uh, just sort of go through and kind of pick out, you know, try to narrow it down as much as possible before we get to the top 50. And Mixon was one of the guys I had in, like, the next group of 10 to 12 guys that I was trying to decide if I wanted, if they deserved to be in that top 50 or not. So he was close. I mean, it's hard It's hard with a guy like him because from my perspective, I guess I'm trying to do it mostly based on – talent and I think talent wise there's no question that he's a top 100 guy in this draft maybe even around one guy in this draft if you took the off-field stuff away from it um you obviously can't do that if you're trying to figure out exactly uh where these guys fit so it's tough because you don't know I mean we always say it just takes one team to kind of feel like they can give him another chance and uh, and I think that will happen somewhere along the line in the draft. I mean, I, I think the last – we did a, a three-round mock draft after the Super Bowl. I had him in the third round. I think he – it wouldn't be a surprise to me at all if he's somewhere on that second day. But um, Well, you know, that's why I asked – big... yeah. Sorry, that's why I asked about the big board in the sense that uh, – look, at I've seen every single play he's run at Oklahoma, and I've – basically seen every single play 
that Oklahoma has run since Bob Stoops has been coach. And there's no way when it comes to just on the field that he's not a top three running back in this draft. He's, in my opinion, and I, I guess, you know, nobody's paying me to be a scout. I'm just a fan who has had the luxury over the last 17 years of watching every single Oklahoma Sooners game, and he is the best running back who's played there other than Adrian Peterson. He's better than DeMarco Murray, and he's better than anyone else. Samarja Pirine isn't even close. I mean, he, his talent is it's elite. I mean, he is one of the best running backs I've ever seen play college football. Well, I mean, I think that, that uh, my top three in this draft have been Cook, Fournette, McCaffrey at running back. I think that would stay for me regardless of the off-field stuff for Mixon. I, I think that those are the top three. Um, I mean, I agree. Like I said, I agree with you that Mixon has clear NFL caliber ability. So, you know, the, the big board, I, I guess, to try and answer your question more specifically I, I like to try to separate out as much as possible and just try to focus on uh the on-field stuff but it is still a part of the equation i mean i think the off-field issues are part of the equation injuries are part of the equation you know playing time i mean i think it's it's all sort of a little piece to the puzzle that you try to add up and figure out exactly what this guy uh not just what he is as a player but what his stock is for the NFL, how he translates to the next level, you know, what sort of uh, pick you'd be willing to risk on him and feel comfortable with. And, and so that, to me, that that's why he's not in the top 50. I mean, I think he's talent wise, he's in that mix. Um, but if you think of him as a, as a, you know, if you say he's a borderline round one talent, and then you add in the fact that you don't really know what you're getting off the field, I think that's sort of how you get to the get to the total equation for me. And again, that's without you know without being in the meeting rooms, without knowing what he's saying to the coaching staff, without knowing what all thirty two teams feel about him. Um, so I, I'm I'm just trying to go based on what I know, and uh, and that's that's what I know that he's a really talented player that I would have concerns about taking too high because I. I worry about the off-field issues. Well, you know what's really interesting about that, and I think is unique with him, is he hasn't been in trouble for three years. You know, it's like we just, anyone who doesn't follow Oklahoma football just happened to find out about it this year. You know, anyone who has followed Oklahoma football knew about this when it happened. I mean, he had only been on campus for like a few weeks. He was a five-star recruit. Everyone knew he was coming, and that's how he, you know, welcomed himself to the campus. And, I mean, yeah, he ripped up a parking ticket or whatever, but if he wasn't Joe Mixon, no one would have cared about that. You know what I mean? So he has stayed out of trouble for three years, which is what makes him so interesting. But I think that, you know, what's going to happen is, is because of what happened three years ago, he's going to get picked in the third or fourth round, and someone is going to take McCaffrey at the end of the first round, and the difference in value between those two picks is going to be end up being unparalleled in the history of the draft in my opinion and it might be i mean i think it's you mentioned the parking lot thing and he got suspended for a game for that it's hard to it's hard to separate that out i mean like you said if there wasn't a background there it, you just sort of brush it off as 
like I, a one-time incident. I've done that in um, my life, to be honest. I did that once. <laughs> I don't uh, think... I, but, I don't but think... Again, he's working from... I mean, it's the same thing as... It's not It's not the same thing, but it's a similar situation to... not. You know, we're talking on a day where every, Twitter's going nuts over this Jameis Winston speech where he went to the school and, and told all the boys to stand up and told, you know, told the girls to sit down. And, and I think it's, it's similar because you're always under that microscope. You know, he had the incident in college and now you're always, he always is going to, it's always going to be something that follows him for every right. act that he does. And mm-hmm. so something like this little Jameis Winston speech stands out more. And for Mixon, it's the same thing. I mean, you're not going, I, I think you have to, I think it is worth taking into account um, that you hope. Hopefully, he's matured. Hopefully, he's a better person now. I think it was important uh, for him. You know, the the video came out of it, and he came out and apologized for it and addressed it. I think that's important. And actually, one of the reasons why it's disappointing he wasn't invited to the combine because I think this is a this is an opportunity uh, for the NFL to kind of force these guys into the media spotlight and make them, you know, they, they, he definitely would have been pressed on that incident uh, had he been at the combine. And so I think in some ways this rule that they have, that they put in, they kind of keep players that have had off field issues and and arrests and, and domestic abuse convictions and things like that away from the combine. I think it actually in some ways shields them, because I think it would have been nice to hear him talk about it again and talk about where he's at and what he's learned and all those sorts of things. So, um, but at the same time, I mean, it's there. You can't get away from what happened. I mean, you can't get away from really how, uh, you know, disgusting an act it was and how unfortunate it was that it happened. Oh, it was brutal. And, it was brutal. Um, so, I, I mean... I, just I hope in all senses that he's grown from it and and understands what's coming in the NFL and how closely he's going to be scrutinized. And if that happens, you know, if he has really learned from it, then, uh, you know, hopefully he can move on and play and be a productive football player. But there are always going to be – there will be teams who don't want to touch him because of what happened, and there are always going to be fans who um, just – would prefer to have nothing to do with him and won't forgive him for that act either. So again, it's tough. To, it's really tough when you're trying to pin pinpoint exactly where he's going to fall, what his value is, because we don't know where these teams stand with him. And we're also sort of guessing that he's going to be able to be okay in the NFL. You know, you're just, we're just assuming that he won't have any other problems once he gets to the NFL. And sometimes that can be a dangerous assumption to make. Right. Yeah, I want to move on, but I would I would only say that the only reason I would feel comfortable assuming that is based on how the last three years have gone at Oklahoma since this happened. Uh, but let's move on to some other things because there's a lot of other interesting parts of this. One thing is, is when I look at your big board, the first thing that comes to mind is, wow, this is a defense. This is a defensive draft, right? Am I right there? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's any question. Um I think the offensive talent is being underrated a bit. I think especially the mid-round, I think there's going to be quite a few mid-round guys at wide receiver, tight end, maybe along the offensive line and running back that can step in and contribute early. But in terms of 
the big names in terms of what we're going to see in round one, I think it's going to be very defense-heavy. And Alabama defense-heavy, right? I mean, it's like Ohio <laughs> State last year. It seemed like every guy drafted was from Ohio State. looks like we might have a similar situation with Alabama this year. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. And, that's, and again, if you look at tight end and offensive tackle, I mean, I think tight end O.J. Howard is the best tight end and offensive right. tackle. I have Cam Robinson as the top offensive tackle. And that's on top of, yeah, I mean, at, at least uh, four, four, maybe five guys around one defensively um, with Foster, Reuben Foster, Jonathan Allen, Tim Williams, all potential top ten guys, and maybe Marlon Humphrey, too. And, and, and that's a group that I think runs fairly deep, too. It's not just those top heavy. I mean, I think Ryan Anderson's a day-two guy. I think uh, Delvin Tomlinson defensive tackles maybe a day two guy and eddie jackson at safety is in that round sort of three range too it's really uh you know it's one of those teams where obviously uh you can understand how they got to the national championship again it's kind of silly to see alabama do this year in and year out you know obviously it seems like cleveland has put the word out in a way that they're in love in love with miles garrett and i would expect him to be the first pick in the draft but it's interesting in the sense that normally you would think wow Cleveland they got to get a they got to get a QB but this is one of these years where they just can't right I mean what's the earliest you can see a quarterback picked in this draft and how do you kind of assess them well I I think they could I guess for starters I mean they shouldn't I don't think I think Miles Garrett's the clear top prospect in this draft I think he's a guy that if he's not turning out 10 sacks as a rookie, uh, and I think he should will go in as the defensive rookie of the year favorite, but he's a he's someone that you would expect to have double-digit sacks every year, uh, maybe from his rookie season on. So I think he should be the number one pick, but I, I say that they could because I think they do need, I think they still do need a starting quarterback. I think if, they, if Hugh Jackson kind of falls in love with someone, that maybe they let him drive that pick a little bit and, and go that direction. I don't think it's a hundred percent written in stone that Miles Garrett's the pick there. I think it's probably ninety-eight percent written that it, that it's Miles Garrett. But I don't know. I think there's a little wiggle room there. Uh, I mean, as for everyone else, I think two. I mean, I, look in terms of the relative to this class where these quarterbacks stack up. Um, I mean, you mentioned the big board. I think I have Watson at fourteen. I have Mahomes kind of down at the fringe around one and then I have Kaiser uh, Trubisky at the top around two range in that 40 area to me that's sort of where they fall I think if you were talking about just straight value compared to the rest of this class that's where you'd be looking for guys but we know it's a position that gets drafted differently than any other position so I think the 49ers definitely be looking at two I think I mean I don't I don't think it's completely impossible for there to be four quarterbacks gone by the top 12, 13 picks just because of the number of teams wow. up there that need quarterbacks. But, and we've got free agency, you know, Romo might get tra- might get traded cousins. Who knows? Um, so you'll fill in some of those gaps, uh, the jets and, and the bills, maybe you'll fill in some of those gaps in the next few weeks. But as of right now, looking at the teams that need quarterbacks, I mean, you can pick out five or six in that top 13 range. It feels like one of these years, it feels like a year where, someone's going to make a mistake like the Bills did with E.J. Manuel, where they just feel like they have to take a quarterback so badly 
that they pick one with their first round pick that they probably didn't really have graded that highly. Yeah, and I'm and I think that definitely will happen to someone. I mean, at the same point, as I said, it's sort of I feel like kind of an underrated offensive draft, and I think that's true at quarterback. I don't love really any of the guys beyond the top four. I think there's some talent there that maybe you can develop uh, as a backup. Maybe down the road they compete for starter jobs. I don't think there's anyone in there that looks the, I mean, everyone's going to get the Dak Prescott comparisons this year. I don't really see anyone like that, but um, that top four, I think is all has the potential to be really good. And that's, this is why it's so tough with quarterbacks every year, but especially in a year like this, when you need one and there's not an obvious one at the top, because you could ask four different people, they'll give you four different names for QB one in this draft. And so, uh, to you know, these teams will do is their due diligence on this and and dig into these guys as much as they can. But as is the case with every pick, and even more so at quarterback, you're going to hand that name in and cross your fingers that you got the right guy because I don't think there's a big gap necessarily. I mean, I like I think Deshaun Watson's the best quarterback in this class. I think he's the most ready to play next year. But there's not a lot of there's not a huge gap between where you could see his ceiling and where you could see Trubisky or Kaiser. I mean, I think it's it's going to be very hard for these teams that want quarterbacks to pick through this and figure out which guy actually deserves to be up top on that list. As a guy who roots for a team who needs a DB and plays in a division <laughs> with Julio Jones and Mike Evans and even Calvin Benjamin, if we're going to still pretend he's good. Uh, there's you got five guys in your top 12 who are DBs, and that makes me really excited. Tell me what you like about the DB class and and, um, and how likely one of these guys will be available when the Saints pick. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the first thing that kind of jumps out is it's five DBs up there, but, you know, you have... Uh, two safeties and three cornerbacks. So no matter what you're looking for, I think you're going to find it. Um, and Jamal Adams at safety is is a guy that's sort of a do-everything guy. You can bring him down to the line and, and play him there. Uh, Malik Hooker's more of a free safety right now. Um, maybe develops into being a run-stuffing guy at safety. So And then, you know, you look further down, you have Buda Baker, you have Pepper. So I think at safety, there's a wide range of, of types. And same thing at cornerback. You know, Lattimore, Quincy Wilson... Um, and Sidney Jones are the three cornerbacks there, and all of them are, you know, kind of check off that height box. They're all physical guys. But I think there are, if you're looking for more of a slot type, if you're looking for more of the, you know, the speed cornerback, there are those guys too. So I think this is, a, again, it's the deep defensive draft, and I think there's a wide range of types of defensive backs in this draft. So that's got to be encouraging for teams that need help there for the saints. I think, you know, they're sitting in a spot where you're rooting for quarterbacks to go off the board early because you want to push those defenders down. Um, you just pick the best defensive player available for them. Right. And either way, I think they're ending up with a pretty good choice. I mean, I don't think, you know, by the time they're on the board, I think it'd be a surprise if there's more than, one of one cornerback gone at that point, maybe none. Um, so they should have their choice there, more or less. 
could get a crack at one or two of the top safeties. And I think that they certainly will look, you know, it's a good spot to be, too, at the edge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I think that's going to be a handful of names that make sense there, too. So they're in good shape if if they want to go defense. It's the Saints. You can never rule out that they just go with the best offensive player there either. But uh, I think that their defensive chances are high. The Sports Guys are here with Chris Burke. Uh, you can find him on Twitter. He's at Chris Burke underscore SI. And his big board, uh, his top 50 came out 4.0 yesterday on SI.com. Uh, let's kind of end with this because I know I'm sure we'll do this at least one more time before the draft. So let's kind of end here. Who's the guy you're in love with? Who Who's the guy that you just can't stop watching? Who's Who's Chris Burke's guy in the in the 2000 and uh 17 draft and i don't necessarily mean you know like obviously you have miles garrett number one but i mean like who's your guy like who's someone that you just can't you just can't take your eye off of yeah i mean and that i think Corey davis is in that similar range where he i love Corey davis as a prospect i think he's pretty well known at this point um i mean i, I will throw out uh, a guy I actually wrote about on our site a couple weeks ago, I think Danelle Pumphrey from San Diego State sort of fits in that range for me because he's way undersized for what NFL teams want as a number one back and uh, probably will slip in. I mean, he might be a day three guy, but if you watch him at San Diego State, uh, he was just electrifying with the ball in his hands. And there's a lot about his game, I think, that translates to the next level and you'll know, get the Darren Sproles comparisons for him a lot. And he's got that same sort of ability as a pass catcher, but I also think he can be at least a, you know, five ten carry a game type guy because he does set up his block so well. He's really patient. He's got good vision. Uh, and he's just a ton of fun. I mean, he's the all time, uh, FBS touchdown or rushing leader, you know, with an asterisk there because they counted his bowl game and didn't count Ron Dane's bowl game. But uh, I, I think that he was an incredible college player. I think he's going to be a really productive NFL player for the team that takes him uh, and lets him be that kind of strolls type guy. Uh, and I think if I'm kind of scrolling down the list, at least of skill position guys, that's one that. I'm very curious to see where he winds up because I think he'll be good. Thanks so much for doing this today, Chris. Really, really looking forward to uh, talking more as the uh, draft season uh, progresses. Yeah, thanks for having me again. And anytime I'm here, always, always uh, ready to talk about this. So just <laughs> let me know. Thanks, buddy. All right, talk to you later. <laughs> All right. I want to thank Chris Burke for being on the podcast today. I love having Chris on the show. Uh, Book club, few notes. First note, if I promised you a book, in my mind, I sent it. As far as I know, I've sent out every book I owe. So if I owe you one and you didn't get it, or don't get it the next week or two, that just means that I screwed up and forgot that I owe you a book. So I need you to help me and email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com, and let me know. Uh, Because it's not that I 
and being a jerk. This is just not something I'm good at, getting these books out. So, But I did mail a bunch yesterday at the UPS store. All right, speaking of books, uh, for the start of the season, we've been looking at looking back at some of the best book club books of the year or books of <laughs> books of the month. They weren't necessarily books of the year. Um, and I wanted to look at one today. It's called Overtime, My Life as a Sports Writer by Frank DeFord. And this book is kind of interesting in the sense that it really represents why we have a book club. And I know Don and I have let this out a few times. We've talked about the fact that We created the book club because we knew that sports writers promoting books were more likely to come on this show than sports writers not promoting books. That people who would never come on in a normal situation might come on because they are promoting a book. And this is a perfect example of that. Uh, I don't think Frank DeFord does a lot of podcasts. Uh, I don't think he does a lot of interviews in general. And we were lucky enough to catch him uh, and spend a really nice amount of time talking to him, too. Sometimes, like in the case with Artie Lang, when you're getting a big fish because of a book, you have a very limited amount of time. I think they told me eight minutes with Artie Lang, and I might have stretched it to about 12. Uh, But Frank DeFord really, I think had very little expectations for the interview. I don't think he had, I know he had no idea who I was. I don't know. This was early. I don't know how familiar he was with podcasts. Um, and it was one of those that it starts where you can tell he's an arm's length away. And he got closer and closer, uh, as the interview went on. And the book over time is his memoir. Now that's the good. The bad is, is earlier or late, I guess, in 2016, he came out with a book called I'd Know That Voice Anywhere, a compilation of his favorite NPR commentaries. And unfortunately, either it never got back to Frank DeFord that we wanted or had arrangements essentially for him to come on to promote that book, or he didn't think it was as good as I thought it was last time or whatever, it was a case of us getting blown off, which happens sometimes. Uh, publishers make promises and then they blow you off. Uh, they get what they want out of you and don't return the favor. It happens, you know. It happened with Al Michaels. Uh, you know, his publisher blew us off. It would have happened with Joe Buck if I didn't have a personal relationship with Joe. And it happened in the case of I know that voice anywhere uh, with Frank DeFord. We got blown off, but. That doesn't mean that over time, my life as a sports writer, Frank DeFord's memoir, wasn't one of the most important and one of my most cherished moments in the history of the book club. So for this week's retro look into book club books of the month past, over time, my life as a sports writer by Frank DeFord. And now we switch gears completely. We're going to take a break and we're going to come back with Justin Barrasso from Sports Illustrated, who covers professional wrestling.
All right, our next guest is from Boston, and he writes about wrestling for Sports Illustrated, one of the best wrestling columns on the internet, and he's nice enough to make his first appearance on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to Justin Barrasso. How's it going, Justin? Hey, thank you very much for having me. I think the show's great, and uh, I love the WrestleMania theme. I still actually work out to that, so uh, the old music was always great. The old Royal Rumble song, the old Mania song. Their old music was really, really solid. They've actually, when you look at it, they have a history of some really fantastic music. They really do. I mean, whether it was Johnson or Jimmy Hart in there, I mean, they've they've come up with some great stuff over the years. It's kind of an underrated aspect of their brilliance, I would say. The only part that they lost, it, you know, they have the instrumental guys. Jimmy Hart, like Jimmy Hart, to me was. The, the wrestler, it just it kind of evolved this way, but it started with Rougeau's, and it, it built from there, DiBiase, HBK, you know, the wrestler singing his song, which you don't hear that anymore, which is funny, because the songs that, you know, if they play DiBiase's music, people go nuts. If they play Michael's music, everyone sings along. It's funny that we've kind of lost that. The music is so instrumentally based now, but it's funny that we've lost the wrestler singing his song, which absolutely was a, was a really key piece to either, or particularly disliking a heel in the 80s. When I got the Piledriver album for Christmas, my favorite track, and I listened to it probably a thousand times that year, was If You Only Knew, when all all the wrestlers were singing. I still love that song. Oh, God, yeah. It's in my rotation. I'm not lying about it. Junkyard Dog has some great standout parts in that. Uh, Hogan's great. And and no one kind of dominates either. Bobby Heenan's got a good line. I love the Piledriver album. Uh, That song being one of my favorites. Yeah, I mean, you got Jive Soul Bro is on there. The Demolition uh, yep. theme is on there. Honky Tonks theme is on there. Really, I think Girls in Cars. Girls in Cars, yeah. Strike yeah. Force, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Bobby Dupree. Great music video, too. Uh, the old um, Coliseum home video. We're getting off track right off the bat. That's but great, fun. Uh, video. <laughs> great Coliseum home video. Uh, you know, back when back when the WWF was, was uh, it's, it's golden era in the 80s. Yeah, I've been collecting Coliseum home videos. There's this guy named Mr. Coliseum on the internet, and he makes really nice DVDs uh, of the old Coliseum home videos. And, um, man, I I just, when they come in the mail, every month I get like two or three of them. Uh, it's just, it's a really fun thing to sit down. It's another thing underrated. Coliseum home video, man, do I miss it. Absolutely. Although they still do a good job. Maybe not as good as that. Since the network, that's maybe the one downside. Since the network, I don't think the DVD game has been as strong, especially from the wrestler documentary um, aspect of it. You know, I don't know that the sets have been quite as great since the network. A few good ones, but not as many. Everything's been network-oriented. I agree with that. (sighs) Well, Justin, let's get get back to some kind of... um, semblance of structure here and and where i wanted to go uh first i wanted to say i love the column it comes out on wednesdays i believe uh and we're recording on a wednesday morning so uh the most recent one i had a chance to read was the one that started with bret hart looking back at his wrestlemania moments uh but for me the column reads a lot like uh like the observer in a way um it's long and it goes into so many different spots and covers all different aspects of the business and uh, gives a lot of different perspectives, whether it be 
the business of the business or uh, looking ahead to the events or looking back on the events. Tell me a little bit about the Wednesday column and kind of what your goals are and kind of how you've developed it over the last year or so at Sports Illustrated. Well, I actually started with the Boston Herald, and my goal was, as a kid, it was a lot of times Saturdays, because Saturdays such a thin newspaper, or I'm, I'm 34, so, you know, uh, newspapers are still pretty strong when I was a kid, I was before, the, before the internet really bloomed or blossomed, and uh, Killer Kowalski wrote, a, wrote a, a very, very short, like a notes column for the Herald, which I, I mean, I ran through every week, it was, my, my grandmother subscribed to the Herald, and read it at her house, and I love to read Killer Kowalski. And it was all basic stuff. You know, it was all written in KFAB, and it was just, for a kid, it was great. I probably still would enjoy reading it now. So I always want, and then I wrote for the Herald, you know, years later, two decades later, and I really wanted to bring wrestling back to the Boston Herald. It's kind of the paper of the people in Boston. Mm-hmm. And so I, I brought some wrestling back, and I did some stories with John Cena. We did a Hogan piece when TNA came to Boston that I really enjoyed doing. I thought that was a nice piece. Um, but what I really wanted to do was build that, you know, the Saturday papers are, again, are so thin because everything builds towards Sunday. I wanted to have a Saturday wrestling column, and I thought it would do well, and we wouldn't be restricted by space. <laughs> I think I was the only person who thought it was a good idea in that entire organization. The sports editor was a great guy, was kind of buying into it, and he, he was actually willing to look at samples of what I was doing and, and some ideas and, and skeletal drafts. So I was really excited. He actually left. He retired. Great man, Hank Ernowitz. He retired. And then the next regime, not only did they want that, they didn't want wrestling at all. So I, I started with SI, and um, they were actually – I had editors there, a great editor by the name of Andy Gray, or one of the executive editors, and he's terrific at what he does. And he was actually pushing me to do the column and – I kind of didn't want to because I feel like every column out there, not the Observer, obviously, is so WWE-oriented. I didn't want to write, and there's no, I read them, it's not like I'm insulting them. I didn't want to write a Raw review or a SmackDown review or, it just, you know, I wanted to do more feature-type stuff as a writer. I think my strength lies, and uh, he kept pushing me, and we, it's been a work in progress the past 60 weeks, but uh, we've, I think, kind of worked on, like you said, it, it, it reads a little Observer-ish which wasn't the game plan, but I, I read the Observer every week. But I really wanted to build it like the Sunday notes, you know, in the, in the Boston Globe or the Boston Herald. You can read, you know, NBA or NHL or NFL ones, but you can't read one on pro wrestling. And I just wanted variety. That variety was the key for us. You know, you brought up something that was, uh, you mentioned, you know, having your editor and working with him. And uh, it reminded me of when David Shoemaker was on the show, Pug, and uh, we were talking about his book. It was during the... Uh, during the book cycle. And that's my daughter, Paula. She's hanging out with us. Paula, you going to say hi to Justin? Yeah. <laughs> uh, she's part of the show. People know her. Um, <laughs> where was I? Okay, Shoemaker was on. And we were talking about his book. And he was talking about some of the frustration of a couple of factual errors kind of sneaking in. Like, you know, I think he accidentally wrote that the retirement match between... Uh, Warrior and Savage happened at WrestleMania 6. And he's like, obviously, I know it was at 7. He's like, but when you send this out to an editor, they don't know They don't know about wrestling the way, like, maybe if you send a football piece to a sports editor and it's stuff for things like that to get caught. And you just reminded me of that. And I wonder if you've run into that problem. Like, 
Do you have someone you can collaborate with that can help you from a content aspect when you're editing the piece every week and, and uh, finding a way for it to get better, like maybe a sports or an NFL writer might, like Peter King might? Uh, or has that been uh, something you found to be difficult as well? No, I mean, I, I think with the you know newspapers, it taught me, you, and those, those pieces were a lot shorter with the paper, but you really got to do your own editing, especially with the wrestling. But with that side, the guys, you, I mean, again, I think it's, it goes back to an interview I did with Jonathan Coachman, and Coach said, you know, for the preparation they do for the Tuesday off-the-rope segment, he's like, I, I do very little. He said, I've got a team around me that, you know, absolutely is in love with pro wrestling. And I kind of feel the same way at SI. I've had two editors really working on the columns, and both those guys, both uh, Brendan and, and uh, Dan, Dan Gartland, are really, really talented and know the business. You know, so it, 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 it's helpful that, like, obviously – when you say shoemaker with WrestleMania, sometimes you can make little mistakes and not catch it just because you're looking at, I don't know, uh, 6,000 words or whatever. So I, right. I get it. But, um, no, thankfully, uh, the guys I've worked with have been pretty big wrestling fans. So it makes a big difference. You know, last week, not only did you have the long column, but you also had another piece about Mean Gene Okerlund uh, where you focused in just on Mean Gene and the piece was about him and his contribution to the business. And, uh, man, did I love it. I'm a huge Mean Gene fan. And it got me thinking about you just a little bit and your process and kind of just curious, do you enjoy doing that? Do you like doing the feature stuff a little bit more than the other or about the same? Uh, what kind of gets you flowing as a writer uh, when you sit down at the screen? Something more Mean Gene or something more Notes? Well, the, the Gene Oakland one, it was midway through the piece, and I thought to myself, i, I got to really tighten this up. i got to make sure, because I thought the same thing. Like, I enjoyed the interview. I enjoyed listening and transcribing the interview. Then I was enjoying, I'm looking at these old stories, or not old stories, but stories from his past. And, you know, he's, he's talking about Bobby Heenan and Andre the Giant, you know, having a few drinks before an interview, or a lot of just fun stuff from my childhood that was meaningful to me. And I thought, man, if this is, you know, I, I tried it because one of the reasons I went into wrestling writing, I wanted to write about the NBA and Major League Baseball. And one of the reasons I shifted toward wrestling was I was reading wrestling stuff every day at lunch. But you, know, you look at a lot of the dirt sheets or dirt sites, and they're really good, but everything's quick hits. You know, you'll read maybe a, you could read like 12 different stories over a 10 minute span. Right. Or span. Mm-hmm. So I wanted something you could chew on. So that's when I started the, the features. And uh, I, really, I really enjoy writing those. And then, you know, the, the business of, of covering pro wrestling, in my opinion, has changed a lot since I started in 2011. And a lot of people cover long form now, you know, a lot of, lot of long form narratives and long form features. So I kind of just wanted to stay fresh. And I thought the column has been a different way to do that. I don't know if anyone does. People do it. But I don't know if anyone does it quite like we do. And I think that's a cool thing for us to hold on to that at least it's different. Even now, you know, I... It's hard not to be a little critical when you're a writer, when you read stuff. If I'm reading the Sunday notes in the paper, in the Globe, like I, I wonder where the, and this is silly because it's what we do, but I wonder where the Tribune is. Like I, I'm, I'm, I, I like the, I hope at least it reads this way. Like I'd hate to just read five straight stories in, a, in, the, um, in our column. I, I really like the fact that we're able to, to put the Tribune in a, in a wrestler's voice with Bret Hart last week. It's Rockstar Spud this week. Right. Uh, the five questions section. I like Q&A, especially, you know, just it's, try, to, try to have variety on the, on the mind and the eyes 
of the reader. But uh, the Gene Oakland piece, yeah, I, I thought that was one of those things where I just love the way he covered the business. Like, here's a guy who was so, if you watch his stuff, and, and you know, Gene was, had a sense of humor, and he was one of the drinkers with the, with the guys at night. But when you watch Gene, he, he really perfected his craft by, by being the straight man. And he was just so good. Uh, so I wanted to, hopefully, you know, I'm just sharing his story, his story. So I was thrilled to be able to share it, and hopefully in a way that, that people enjoyed it. Yeah, and that's available on SI.com. I'll link to it uh, uh, on my Twitter as well. Uh, you mentioned you're 34. I'm, I'm just a little bit ahead of you, 36. Do you remember what it was? Do you remember the first angle or the first event or the first thing that drew you in that, that made you a wrestling fan? You know, one of the early ones was, uh, of, all, of all things, it was, I remember my brother and I, my brother introduced me to it when I was young, but it was, uh, I guess the 90 Rumble, it was the uh, father and son, Dusty and Dustin, versus DiBiase and Virgil, and I couldn't really figure out, probably because, uh, you know, I was seven, but I couldn't figure out the dynamic between DiBiase and Virgil, uh, did he work for him, what did he do for him, why weren't they getting along, I liked Dusty, uh, loved the Macho King, I guess when I knew I was I was hooked was when Flair won the Rumble. And I'm pretty sure that was a no school day the next day. So for you know, me at the time, you know, I, I, I never thought he, I wanted him to win. But, you know, you're so used to seeing Hogan win the Rumble. I'd won the past two. So, right. yeah, I guess early on, then, then, you know, as I aged a little bit and I watched um, Hart Michaels at SummerSlam. And sometimes as a kid, I don't know if you, can, you necessarily can express why you like it, but you just know you like it. And, they had these larger-than-life figures, and they told these great stories, and they had such personality. It's interesting when you, I don't know when this will air, this podcast, but the SmackDown, the most recent SmackDown, the 21st, that ended with the Battle Royals, that ended, they made a mistake. They didn't execute the move. Harper and AJ Styles didn't fall at the same time. Like, to me, that's the biggest difference in wrestling. And you said you're 36 from our generation to today's generation. They called audibles back then, and maybe... That's the reason why they don't do it anymore, because Vince wanted more control when you look at the stories from behind the scenes. and I mean, I write about it every week. It was, it was chaos. But the way they could call audibles then, they don't do it now. So what happened last night? They made a mistake, and literally it was like people froze. The broadcast team looked silly. Daniel Bryan didn't look good. Uh, maybe they cover it up next week. They couldn't show a replay because they, they couldn't think quick enough because it wasn't on that script. So it's really interesting how the business has changed. Yeah, you know, for me, and there's a lot to take in there, but for me, I do remember uh, the build-up to WrestleMania two and Hogan having his ribs taped and the fake doctor uh, and Mean Gene, uh, like in a workout session with Hogan, and the doctor's like, you know, he just shouldn't he shouldn't go in WrestleMania two. I remember turning to my mom like, what is closed circuit? Can we do that? And... It actually, we couldn't find a place to go, but then the next year, the Steamboat and Savage angle, I was the perfect age to believe every second of that. You know, the the way Steamboat sold, and we know, you know, knowing now he's one of the best sellers in the history of the business, but the way he sold the bell hitting the throat and the vignettes they did with him you know, talking, trying to learn how to talk again. Talk again, right. You know. And we, we, we would hate it now, I bet. But at the time, man, was it perfect. 
It was so awesome. And then I had the big WrestleMania 3 party at home. And when Steamboat won the title, I mean, it was the best moment of my life. I was age seven at six, going on seven at the time. And now here's the funny part of this. So you know I'm from Buffalo, New York. And this whole thing has, like, changed my life at age seven, Steamboat winning this title like this. And in June, there's a TV taping. Then my mom and my dad say, you had a good year in school this year. We're going to reward you and take you to the taping. And I'm thrilled. I mean, I'm over the moon. We get good seats. We're pretty close to, to the ring, maybe 10 rows back. And it comes time for Steamboat to defend the title. And I'm like, this is I guess, awesome. May I, guess his, may I guess his opponent? You may guess his opponent, yes. I'm going to guess managed by the mouth of the south of the colonel back then, Jimmy Hart. It was the honky-tonk man. It was. And Steamboat lost the title right in front of me. And I pro- I promise you, I cried for 45 minutes on my dad's lap. My dad, my dad tried everything: popcorn, t-shirts. I mean, I was devastated. Couldn't believe it happened. I remember telling my dad, "Oh, this guy's a bum. He's got this guy." And uh, that was kind of uh, that kind of led me down the path. And it's kind of a funny story, I think, just how it all. Ended up happening right in front of me there like that. And I hate to say this to you, but it kind of ties together Buffalo sports, Buffalo sporting moments. You've had right? a lot of heartbreak. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah it, was like, uh, it was like added to the list of all of the bad things that have happened to Buffalo. Justin, can Still you give me... It's hard to believe they have that major, major program. Steamboat, you know, if you believe the story, and he, he kind of... Everybody's a little more polite now because, you know, Vince is the only show in town, but it's hard to believe they gave up on him as IC champ that quickly they were going to go to butch reed hogan says why not him when butch no showed the show they go to honky it's just hard to believe that they didn't go longer with steamboat after that i mean that's one of the most memorable feuds of all time the most memorable matches there's, there's no rematch they could have done them at wrestlemania 4 would have been babyface or babyface uh savage steamboat but yeah such such a so many lost opportunities there. Yeah, you know, it was really interesting to me, too, about the end of the Steamboat run, and that can kind of lead us into, because I did want to ask you about Conrad Thompson and the uh, podcast empire he's building with Bruce Pritchard and now, obviously, with Tony Schiavone. And it was interesting because one thing that initially turned me off a little bit is in one of the very first episodes they talked about uh, what had happened with Steamboat and Bruce said that Steamboat was unhappy and asked for his release while he was champion and that Vince you know didn't want an unhappy locker room and gave him his release but I knew as someone who's a huge Steamboat fan and had studied his career that he actually asked for a short leave while his wife was having a baby and Vince said he couldn't give him the leave because you remember back then they were doing multiple house shows and the Intercontinental right. House, you would all often have to carry one of the house shows. So Steamboat agreed to drop the title, but he stayed with the company you know, through WrestleMania 4 and didn't leave until in 88 sometime. And I remember just thinking after I heard Bruce just misremember it wrong, like, man, I, I don't know if this is going to be... You know, if if he can just, you know, it just turned me off a little bit. And then luckily I just let that slide by as just kind of just a misremembrance because I think those guys are doing an unbelievable job. What do you think about what they do? Obviously, you have a piece with Conrad in your 
uh, in your column, usually weekly. What do you think about what they've been able to do and how that has kind of revitalized the lapsed fan a little bit and has kind of drawn out um, maybe someone who's not a current follower of the product, but someone who, uh, you know, I think they're doing a great job bringing people back maybe. What do you, what do you think about their podcast, Empire, in general, and what Conrad's been able yeah, to do? I mean- and I love wrestling podcasts. There's so many of them, so it's hard to disseminate which ones do you choose and why. But I just love the format. A, I think Conrad and Bruce work together. So I think Bruce Pritchard, in my opinion, is the most uh, you know entertaining personality in podcasts. And I, I even put him above Steve Austin. I love the Steve Austin show. But it's just different. It's different for somebody who's behind the scenes. Right. You know, I think the talents are so limited. Like, they don't know the whole card. They knew what they were doing, and that's what they should know. But, yeah, Pritchard's got a really unique perspective. I think Conrad's really funny. I think he adds a lot to the program. I like the Tony Schiavone show. I like at the end when he says they're, they're running out of time. See you next week. <laughs> um, I, I, but I love the format on something to wrestle with with Bruce, Bruce Pritchard. I just think they, they've, they found the right genre. They found the right people. We can vote on the topics. And that's why early on I thought it was just different. It was different and it was talented because how do you – with the world of it's, podcasts is similar to writing in a sense that, and there's so many wrestling columns, there's so many podcasts. How do you differentiate? How do you be a little bit different? Man. And I think that Conrad's done a nice job of that. And it's, it's fun to listen to every week. Um, we talked last night uh, about WrestleMania nine, about the WrestleMania nine podcast. And that's, I think, uh, I don't want to say it's my least favorite mania because WrestleMania two was pretty bad, but WrestleMania nine's really bad. But I'm excited to hear about the behind this, a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, the injuries. Uh, there's a rumor that they discussed that they wanted to make Scott Steiner a single star, have him win that Rumble, and have him win the belt at that Mania. I'm curious to hear Bruce talk. That was a Bruce Pat- Patterson idea. Curious to hear if that had any legs to it. So yeah, I just think that they've, they've really found lightning in a bottle. It's fun to listen to. Yeah, you mentioned what a crowded space it is. and you know, I always thought that Steve Austin was the best and i you know i remember when i first started listening to steve's show and thinking man i've been podcasting for three and a half years at the time now and this guy's been doing it for three weeks and he's always he's already better than i'll ever be and uh just envying him in that way but richard deitch had conrad on his show this week and i don't know if you've heard it or my listeners have heard it yet uh but conrad did a great job kind of pointing out how you know he found a way into the space as you mentioned uh in a way that no one else had really stumbled upon. And I think it's going to be like PTI was to sports shows. You know, I think, you know, PTI premiered and six months later, every, everyone was doing a PTI. The news was doing a PTI type program. And I think that this format, uh, is going to, uh, spawn a lot of copycats, not just in wrestling, uh, but in all kinds of different things. So I really tip my cap to those guys. I think they're doing an amazing job. Great point. I, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm surprised. Actually, the other piece that I am surprised by is that it hasn't already happened. I completely agree. I think that you'll see more and more of it. Uh, I do agree with that. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the next couple of months. Obviously, it's WrestleMania season, and uh, we had the Rumble. And uh, you made a great point, which is something I thought about the second it happened is Man, I can't believe they burned that 16th Cena title run the way they did. Um, I'm surprised he would even go for it. What yeah. a waste. Uh, 
And I'm a huge, I, I, you know, I'm a huge Cena guy in the sense that I admire anyone who works at the top of this business. You know, uh, I was a huge Hogan guy growing up, and from there, I think I just admired the guy on top. And the more and more I learned about the business and learned how hard it is to be on top, I have such an admiration for John Cena to be able to carry it for that long. And I think they really did a disservice to him and to Ric Flair and to the business in general to just kind of blow by that as it, and make it seem so insignificant. But that was kind of the beginning of a build towards what, I, you know, and it's maybe the third year in a row, I think, where I thought, what the hell are they going to do? Last year it was injuries, and this year it just seems like they have some huge Huge names, Undertaker being one, Cena being one, Ambrose being another, who just, as we talk in uh, the middle of uh, the end of February, they're, you know, they're guys without a home for Mania still. And it's like, where is this show going? I think the thing we're going to see with Mania, and it makes a little bit more sense, the Cena title change for a number of reasons. I think you devalue the title when you do that. It, it hurts John's legacy. They should have. I mean, Flair was at the Rumble, and they scrapped all that. You know, Flair strapping the belt on. Yeah, I can't believe it. Which they'll probably do at seventeen, but it just seems like a missed opportunity. It's, actually, I shouldn't say it seems like it is a missed opportunity at sixteen. Yeah, especially yeah. after a classic match like that with Styles. And I, I criticize Cena, you know, for his on on air stuff. But I think Cena's great. I think Cena's a, a great talent. I think he's been stale at times, but like you said too, when you're gonna, be at the top and carry that business for so long. You got to be special at what you do. I I agree though. It's 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 a really odd call. The only thing that makes sense is Cena's not on. He's not headlining cards after Mania. Right. I assume John's going away and filming something. Because why else would Nikki Bella's taking a break too after post Mania? Why else would you agree to leave the world title picture? They could have saved Cena Styles for Mania. Because Cena, excuse me, Styles right now is kind of a ship with no anchor. We don't know where he's going to go at Mania. Yeah, he's another name. Yep. Yeah, and you wonder why they just wouldn't have that match at Mania. They could have done an Iron Man match, which I know the women just did. Maybe it wants to have been different. They could have done a two out of three falls. They could have done, they could have been creative. They could have had a one-on-one match, and people would have been happy. Like at the Rumble, they're so good together. So I, it's just odd that you, Cena must be going away because they, and it's just, it's funny that, Here's the political side of Cena. I wonder if, or maybe it was Vince, or maybe it was both of them, but they wanted to make sure that their guy beat Styles, which I I understand because Cena's their guy, but, man, Styles was so good. You were better off, in my opinion, running that angle toward Mania. If you wanted to have a triple threat, you could have had Wyatt and Orton in there, too. I prefer to see Styles in that match besides Luke Harper, which it seems like they're headed in that direction. No, I, know. I didn't like the decision to have Styles drop the belt at the Rumble. Maybe you can't have him beat Cena again, which is fine. Then don't have him, have him fight Orton at the Rumble. Have him do something else. But I didn't like the, the whole booking there. It just seemed like a really short-term angle for what should have been a big-time big play. Plus, when they get criticized for – now you have two world champs already. Which I hate. And both of them mean less and less. It's like – you know, Kenny Omega, we did that fun story with him, I thought, over the, right around Wrestle Kingdom, and he talked about how it would be such, he'd wear the IWGP title with such pride. And he jokingly said, you know, a couple guys on his block have already 
traded the WWE title back and forth. That belt means nothing. It is very odd to see them tr- treat their world titles with such hot potato status. Yeah, and it seemed like they had gotten over that hump for a while, you know. And yeah. now it seems like we're getting sucked back in. And, you know, Meltzer seems to insist that they're looking at Cena and Nikki Bella versus The Miz and his girl. And I, I'm just like, wow, that's what we're going to do with John Cena and Mania. And I'm surprised he would go for that. Maybe it so puts Nikki in a spot. And I'm shocked he is going. The only thing that makes sense to me is he's going away afterwards. If he's going away after him, there's no blow off. That's the blow off. It makes sense. But man, you're John Cena. That's the and he doesn't have. Let's be honest. I mean, I feel like you and I are talking about WrestleMania eight, and we're talking about Hogan retiring, and then he's fighting it. You know, ten years later. But how many more WrestleManias does John Cena have? Does right. he have? I mean, probably five more. You never know. I mean, with injuries and the way the business moves now, it's such an athletic, demanding business. Yeah, I'm really surprised that he would agree to a mixed tag match like this. You mentioned Omega and, uh, you know, he had a, a classic match. You know, I've always been a, a mostly a WWF slash WWE guy. I did get sucked into ECW. Buffalo was almost like an ECW hub. It's probably one of their top three cities. They, they ran a ton of shows here. I had a pay-per-view here, a couple pay-per-views here, I think. Um, uh, but, you know, when something's going on where people are saying there was a six-star match, I take time to watch it. And I sat and I watched the 45-minute match, and for as much as you can enjoy a match without the context that surrounds it, I thought it was fantastic. And then I watched Cena and Styles, you know, a few weeks later, and it really did stir up a lot in the in the IWC about Meltzer and the way he rates things, where he gives the one match a six star, and he give what did he give Cena and Styles uh, four point seven five. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, Meltzer and his ratings and the way it fires people up? And what do you think? There's a, a favoritism towards Japan from Meltzer, which I know he he denies to the death, but. I mean, I don't know. He had four matches. He had four matches. He had four point seven five or better, and you know, to not give Cena and Styles a five, it just it was strange to me. That is strange. It's funny how much, and I I, I read Dave Meltzer every week. It's funny how people use him to justify their thoughts and their reasoning. It's like it's just one man's opinion. Doctor right. knows you know so much and probably knows he'll forget more than we'll ever learn. He knows his stuff inside. Now I don't know. Is there a bias there? You know, that, that old quote, you love a farce, fight at home. I don't know. It's, it's interesting that I just think that New Japan, and you can build a different relationship with those talents, too. Like, when I interviewed New Japan talents, sometimes there's someone with us because just we need the help with a translator. Right. But it, it's kind of old school, too, in the sense that you're, you know, I've had dinner with some of those guys, and not like it wasn't, like, set up, but we were at the same sub shop before a show, and we sat together. It's just kind of an old school way of covering the business that you're, it's not, no one's, none of the talent's fault with WWE. But, I mean, I've been in, with WWE, I've been in situations where I've been in the building covering an event and we get a phone call instead of a face to face. I mean, we were in the same building, but they, it's just, they, they run kind of an odd operation in, with, with PR in that sense. You wonder if that plays an image, if he's got to know what he has. I don't know. You wonder why some of those matches, though, in Dave's defense, some of those matches that he gives the high ratings to are really good matches. I don't know. I don't know if there's a if there's a slight bias somewhere deep down inside there, but 
you could argue Cena Styles, the Nitro match with uh, Michael Elgin, that was fantastic, and then Omega Okada are the top three of 2017. But I really thought WWE, you know, it's so hard to have these shows, in this case, every two weeks. It was the Rumble, then it was Elimination Chamber. I thought the Elimination Chamber match itself, the card was weak. That match itself, I'm curious you take, I thought it was spectacular. Yeah, it was maybe the best Elimination Chamber I've seen in a long, in a long time. Probably, probably a top three. Time, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, is it Carano that you deal with when you're in the buildings? Is he is he the contact that that you have to work with when you're when you're? No, I've never. He's more talent relations, so I'm, okay. I'm talking more PR. I mean, he might be part of the decision making. I don't know, but I, I've never. We've been in the same room together once, but we never had the chance to meet. Gotcha. Yeah, it, it's so interesting their response in general to coverage because it's like they want the mainstream coverage, you know, they want that exposure, but it's almost sometimes like they always want it on their terms and they want to cherry pick it, you know, and it's like, okay, this sports center spot. Yes, we want that, you know, but man, eh, maybe not this SI column for whatever reason. And it, it's always fascinated me, uh, the way they, they kind of operate, you know, for a while they were really into getting guys on Stern, you know, Stern, Man, I think Austin had an unbelievable spot on there. Rock had a spot on Stern where he was talking about uh, sleeping with fat girls on the road for fun. Um, you know, just you don't hear those. You don't hear those anymore. Yeah, and that that's not happening anymore. Um, but it just fascinates me the way they the way they deal with uh, with outsiders who are trying to, uh, if nothing else, just cover and legitimize everything they do. Which is tough, though, because I think you've got, you know, people from the old school, and it wasn't that way, because the, the outside world was there to hurt you. But, I mean, if you look at WWE now, and you still have to be very careful how you cover it, the Boston Globe actually is covering it. We, we interviewed Bob Haller uh, in one of the columns, but you know, the concussion cases are have su- such legs to them that I think they're very hesitant, WWE. I think that, that might be a concern, too. Because it, these cases are so hard because in very rare cases has someone worked entirely for WWE. You know, they, they normally work, you look at Balls Mahoney, for instance. The guy, the guy worked all over. These guys were, were pro wrestlers in the truest sense. So I don't know. I, I wonder if that's part of it, too. But they, they are very protective of their brand. It's like you said, they want to be on SportsCenter, but the coach isn't reporting on concussions either. So it's sort of a, a tricky ground where if that were... I'd say if that were the NFL, maybe that's a bad example. But if that were another pro sport, you'd, you'd think you'd hear the criticism, too. You've got to cover something. I mean, you've got to cover pro and con. Now, I never I never believe we should get personal. Like, if I say I don't like a John Cena match or I don't like a John Cena interview, I've got nothing against John, right? I've got nothing right. against, like, it's purely professional, and that's, I think, the way we should cover this business. It's never personal, and that's but. If you want to cover something, there's pros and cons to it. So I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's hard to say how how sensitive they are. They're, they're pretty well. They protect their brand pretty well, though. Their credit. The sportscasters are here with Justin Brasso. He writes a fantastic wrestling column on SportsIllustrated.com. You can also find him on Twitter. He's at Justin B A R R A S S O. And again, SI.com, where you can find the work uh, from Justin there as well. Uh, maybe we should. Yeah. Can I mention today's column real quick? Sure, yeah. Plug away, please. 
Thank you. Uh, it was supposed to be Kevin Nash in the opening spot, but sometimes things work out for a reason. He's rehabbing his shoulder. He just said, actually, 31st major surgery, wow. which is hard to believe. Um, a, a, a body could withstand that type of pain. Anyways, he, he was unable to do it, which is totally fine. He was upfront about it, and we talked, and just didn't feel up to the interview. Hopefully, we'll reconnect soon. But it was kind of a last-minute interview. I, ne- I needed to fill that opening spot, and I had a couple people I could have called, but I'd been wanting to call him anyways. And it was Terry Funk, and he's in the opening spot today, and it was a really fun call, and he was it was a cold call. He wasn't expecting it. wasn't like we set it up beforehand. And he was so, kind of to give the background on the story. He kind of cut me off at one point and asked why I'd even want to talk to him. And I, you know, I kind of said, excuse me? And he said, why would you want He said, I'm 72. I'm I'm not involved in the business. What do I know? <laughs> I kind of laughed and said, are you kidding? Then you're an icon of the business. You're Terry Funk. And then he kind of laughed and went, went on back talking about uh, the evolution of, of hardcore and the current day business. And it was really interesting because Terry's a couple of years older than Vince. And he's seen everything. But he's not defined. Terry Funk's a unique guy that was not, it was not, is not defined by WWE. I thought he was fascinating. I hope the story reads that way. I hope I did it justice. But um, he talked about Brock and Goldberg in the main event at Mania. And he didn't call them old timers. Because I wanted his opinion because he headlined a lot of stuff with ECW, as we talked about earlier. And he was in his 50s then. Right. So it was taken away from a younger guy. And his big thing was if you're fresh, it didn't matter to him. If it gets eyeballs, you know, he called them fresh timers. He said they're still, they're still bringing a fresh taste to the business. I thought that was interesting. And he talked about, too, the lack of, it wasn't the Nikolai Volkov tag team, but he talked about the lack of Bolsheviks in wrestling and the lack of renegades and the lack of radicals. And it's funny because when you think of Terry Funk, man, he was his, Terry Funk was his own man. Paul Heyman, too. But it's funny, Heyman works for WWE. Everyone works for WWE. At some point or another, the biggest show in town. So it was interesting to hear Terry's perspective on the business, particularly he's seen, he worked with, Vince Sr. He worked with Vince Jr. He's pretty much worked everywhere with everyone. It was really interesting, his perspective. So I'm excited. I hope people hope it responds well. I mean, I know he's not the most current day biggest star, but I think people still have a lot of respect for Terry Funk tonight. I hope people enjoy the column. Who's your dream get for that spot? For the column? Yeah, for that opening spot. Who Who's your, who's your golden, golden goose, so to speak? Do you have one? Well, I've never interviewed Vince McMahon, so I think that would be that'd yeah. be probably the biggest if you could ever get Vince. Uh, and he's mellow. It was fun to watch the thirty for thirty; those old Costas interviews, and to look back at the Armin Katane interviews. And Vince was really throwing his fastball then. It'd be fun to to interview Vince, but any any McMahon is fascinating. You know, I've interviewed Stephanie and Linda, and Triple H. Uh, he's not a McMahon, but the Triple H story actually comes out next week. I'm really excited about that too. But probably Vince or Shane in that spot. I just think the McMahons are so, so fascinating. All right, let's get you out of here on this. Last thing I want to ask you about, and that's the network. Uh, It's a couple years in now. I've been a subscriber from day one. And I'm going to say right off the bat, I'm really disappointed about the fact that they're underserving the people in our age group. They have not added anything from the Hogan era in almost two years. Um, I know that maybe they thought SmackDown and Raw is a priority. That's fine. This is an on-demand prescription service. I don't see why they can't be adding superstars and adding prime times and things like that. With that aside, what do you, 
What do you think about the network in 2017 as it stands, and where do you see it going from here? I actually think it's easier to use. I like it better than the Fight Pass from the UFC Fight Pass, but I agree. For the people who, and, and I mean, I think we're crying you know, about it, but people older than us. Oh, man, they got to be really frustrated. What do you do for them? Yeah. But I agree. Some of the most interesting content on that network, to me at least, the old Tuesday Night Titans. I love the Saturday Night Main Events. They need more superstars. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a daily frustration when you look at that site, when I look at old stuff. I actually find myself, the way that I, I relieve that stress, if I want to find something, I can't find anything I want to watch, I just watch the old Nitros. And I was a huge WWE fan. So, like, I was, you know, pro Vince, pro, pro everybody WWF. Um, and I, I really have a new respect for what Nitro did. If you look back, those crowds were red hot. They were, they were real. The, the storylines are realistic. So when I can't find, you know, my 80s WWF feed, I go to the 90s and I go to Nitro. It's just, to me, it's so good. But I, I like the old stuff. I prefer the old stuff. I like, but I, I wish they, the, I like the JBL show. I like this interview with Stan Hansen. It's too bad they dropped that. Yeah, like, unbelievable. I know. It was great. Yeah, I, I hope maybe the easiest thing you have these guys you could even have some of the younger talent at the round i, I when they were on the the uh, on demand they had the round table discussion if you remember love i love it. that round table love discussion. it yep those are on the I network so, too those are awesome fantastic i i just love i think i've seen them all three times i'd love some new ones yeah so would i i don't know yeah that's my biggest frustration with the network and you wonder if it's people who are a little bit younger putting up that content. Oh, we got to get out these smackdowns. And, you know, I know, I don't know, but give me the 1980s. Give me King Harley race. Give me, give me the real stuff. You know, I, that's what I want to. So I'm with you on that. All right, let's lay it out one more time. I want to make sure everyone can find you. If you go to www.si.com slash author slash Justin dash Barrasso, you can find his stuff that way. If that's too complicated for you, of course, there's Google, Justin Barrasso, Sports Illustrated. It'll come up top line that way as well. And you can find him on Twitter. He is at his name. And we'll spell it one more time, Justin, B-A-R-R-A-S-S-O. He's got a column every Wednesday. I love that one. It's awesome. Every week it reads sort of like The Observer, if you've read it. We talked about it. And, of course, his other work, uh, most recently a Mean Gene article, and uh, he was nice enough to uh, give us some teasers about what's coming soon. And I have to say this. It's been a crazy day in my life today. And uh, Justin has been an amazingly flexible, kind uh, guy to work with me and to deal with baby Paula in the background and all that. Uh, so I can't thank you enough, buddy. And I hope we can uh, we can do this again. Is there anything else you want to plug or anything else you want to get out there? Just to thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the show. I know it wasn't the easiest day for you, but I appreciate the chance to be on. I'm curious to hear about this uh, tease with the big fish. Who do you have in store? Okay, so here's the deal. The big fish is Joe Piznanski, but Joe Piznanski is coming on March 8th now. So the other guest this week is a colleague of yours, Chris Burke, and we'll talk NFL Draft with him. Oh, great. Not that Chris isn't a big fish. Chris is a great, great friend of the show. Uh, but Poznanski's a guy that, I mean, you got to scratch and crawl. Paula, relax. You got to scratch and crawl to get him uh, on, but he'll be on March 8th, so just a little delay for, uh, for Poznanski. 
little NFL in this week's column. We have uh, Jacoby Jones in the five questions with section. He obviously talks some Super Bowl, some Ravens, and he gets in his uh, Patriots. Day. You know, any you interview any Raven at any time of, of, of day, year, uh, you ask a Patriots question. I don't care if it starts with a compliment. It will end with an insult. He gets his insult into Belichick and Brady, too. So, <laughs> he, so he called them, uh, you know, I, I love to play the game of, like, which wrestler would they be? Adam Jones of the Baltimore Orioles, I thought it was so much fun. I asked him if A-Rod and Jeter would be like the Rockers, you know, Michaels and Gennetti. And he said, no, that's crazy. And I, I thought he was irritated by the question. And he goes, no. And he was, he was just he was passionate. And he said, no. He said, A-Rod's Hulk Hogan. He said they were both huge baby faces. And then A-Rod with the Yankees was Hollywood Hogan. I said, Jesus, Adam, that, that's, that's like brilliant. <laughs> and then uh, uh, Jones, Jacoby Jones, I asked him about Ray Lewis, Belichick, and Brady. Ray Lewis of course, gets to be the Rock, and then uh, Brady and Belichick were Goldust and Jake the Snake. So, wow, a true Raider, yeah, awesome. Well, thank you, Justin. This has been great. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to uh, to next time and to you being a friend of the podcast. Thanks for having me on. All right, I want to thank Justin Barrasso and Chris Burke for being on the podcast today. Paula and I are hanging here for a few more minutes. Don't forget you can find this episode, the last episode and all of our episodes, on our SoundCloud page, www.soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher and wherever podcasts are found. Find us on Twitter if you can, at sports underscore casters, or at Sports. You can also email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. And I ask you to check out my other podcast I do with Adrian Dater called The Lonely End of the Rink if you like ice hockey. You can find that at soundcloud.com slash lonelyrinkpod or on Twitter at lonelyrinkpod. All right, one last thing. It's been a long week, as I said, uh, and prayers for sure with Molly and Don and Michelle, who I know I'm sure is a wreck. Hopefully Molly, who's a tough girl, recovers soon. Um, but earlier in the week, I had to take my dog Colston to the vet. And you know dogs, they go to the vet once a year. It was nothing more or anything less than that. It wasn't some kind of, uh, you know, emergency type of thing or anything like that. But it was during the day when my wife was at work, so I had to take Paula and Colston to the vet. So here I am, the dopey husband, you know, carrying my dog, my little doggy, and my little daughter, and we're getting into the vet, and my dog is petrified at the vet for, I guess, the same reasons I'm Humans are petrified at the doctor. So he's flipping out. And she was actually being really good. And uh, we get into the into the room, so to speak. And, you know, the doctor is examining Colston. And he lost a little bit of weight. You know, he's doing really well. His teeth look really great. 
His hips are okay. Just a great report. And the vet's just talking to me, and we start talking about the relationship that Colston and Paula have. And it's one of those things that really just makes my wife and I kind of melt. Since the day that Paula came home, Colston has just been the the best big brother, and we've been so proud of him. I mean, the first week or two that Paula came home, I don't think Colston slept. He was on guard 24-7, protecting his sister and making sure his sister was okay. Every time we would take Paula somewhere, Colston would want to go because I guess he just wanted to make sure that we were going to bring her back. And now that she's getting older, she is just in love. Colston makes Paula laugh more than anyone on earth, human or otherwise. He cracks her up and they just... They just they just have an amazing connection in such a short time. Paul is only eight months old, and Colston's five. And the vet was saying, you know, just how much she loves to see when kids and their dogs have such great relationships. And you know, I said I couldn't agree more. But me being me, and this is, I'm sure other people are like this, but it just scares me. It just it just it, it 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 makes me realize how much harder it's going to be uh 10 years from now uh, or whenever the day comes because not only is it going to be hard for my wife and hard for me to lose a pet but now for my daughter my sweet little daughter who's going to have grown up with him from the day she was born Never have lived a day without him. And it's so silly to think about that now, but that's just that's just how I can be sometimes, you know, worried about things I don't need to worry about. And that is the case of it. And I thought of uh with one last thing that I would would talk about that today. But I don't want to dwell on that sad part, that very end but more just the joy that my wife and I feel uh, when we see our daughter and our dog interact uh, because they truly are best friends. (laughs) 